Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, November 18th, 2015, the Pray for Paris War with ISIS edition. In light of the events of last Friday, we're making this a special edition of the podcast in which we discuss a single topic in two parts, and I'm sure listeners, even if they hadn't already heard the title of the edition, wouldn't struggle to guess which one. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. Joined as usual by one of my usual co-hosts, Scott Lucas, who is a Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing very well this afternoon. Regular listeners will be disappointed to know Cristala is not with us because she's in New York doing important things. Uh, but fear not, we have an able replacement in the form of Marco Vieira, who is a senior lecturer in international relations. Hello, Marco. Hello, everyone. Nice to be here. It's nice to have you. Welcome, Marco. The first Brazilian we've had on this podcast. Uh, and no doubt one of many more nationalities to be accumulated as we proceed. Uh, two topics this week. First, as jihadist terrorists bring mass murder to the streets of Paris for the second time this year, and this time on a much grander scale, we contemplate what the fallout of this latest outrage is likely to be for the politics of domestic security in Europe and the West, with inverted commas going up here, more generally. Second, ISIS, ISIL, Islamic State, Daesh, Call them what you will, the hardline spin-off of al-Qaeda in Iraq and Syria that has since gone rogue and set new standards for brutality in its conduct, claimed and was granted responsibility for the Paris attacks. With President Francois Hollande declaring France is at war with the group, has the world hit replay button on the war on terror? On Friday, November 13th, Paris was rocked by the murder of 129 people and the wounding of 352 more in coordinated terrorist attacks. Most were shot by gunmen who assaulted the crowd at a busy concert venue, others in simultaneous attacks on cafes and restaurants in the 10th and 11th districts. Finally, two suicide bombers blew themselves up at the Stade de France, having been denied admission to the France v Germany football game taking place inside. Seven of the perpetrators killed themselves during or immediately after the attacks, but President Francois Hollande, who was attending that game, swiftly attributed ultimate responsibility for their planning and execution to ISIS, the extremist group whose rise as a force in Iraq and Syria uh, has been a source of grave concern to Western security services. ISIS itself later confirmed that with a public claim of responsibility. With the armed forces on the streets of European capitals and the mood of public and politicians towards Muslims, refugees and others tarred with a broad brush of association with the terrorist threat darkening, what does this mean for politics, security and the politics of security in Europe? Marco, I'm guessing the answer is nothing good, but what's your analysis? A number of things that I, uh, I think are important here. One of them is the language that has been used by President uh, Hollande in particular, but also by most of the West. Uh, Western leaders in terms of using this particular event to intensify their involvement in the, the conflict in Syria. When I, I, I hear this, this particular language of militarization, of, of further militarization of, of the conflict, the first thing that comes to my mind is it's exactly what ISIL wants. So it's working for them. For them. I, I mean, one of the pieces I read when I was uh, thinking about uh, um, these horrific events that just happened uh, one piece at the New York Review of Books was quite interesting. What he said was uh, ISU, or ISU's aim is the management of chaos. So that's what they do. And for them, it has maybe two dimensions. One is to uh, further create divisions within Western societies. It's playing, you know, uh, uh, or it's working for them in that respect. 
that the language that has been used uh, to us against them is, has, ha, has had this, this kind of effect. Mm. Well, a significant part of them being people who are physically in the West already. It's not even like a distant enemy. It's, it's a very divisive rhetoric about both refugees and also long-standing mm-hmm. residents and citizens of, of, of the West. Yeah, and this, and this is one aspect of it which I think is quite shocking is and begs belief, actually, to associate the refugee crisis with what happened in France. Because if you look at it, it could have been used you know, as a way to demonstrate, look, these people are actually fleeing the conflict, are fleeing you know, the tyranny of ISIL, not only ISIL, you know, the, 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 the civil war in, in Syria, but actually our you know, uh, way of life, our principles are attractive to these people. They want to join us. Uh, we have to embrace these people. It plays against the whole ideology of ISIL, say they don't want to live under our... Mm. rules in our ideology, they want to join the West, and what she's doing is demonizing them. Now, most, or not everyone, obviously, but this language that you see that the refugee crisis will be, or the flow of refugees will allow, enable mm. elements of ISU to now to penetrate on, on, on those countries and, 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 and conduct these kind of acts, is exactly what ISU basically is, is uh, wants. Uh, and and I think it's really uh, worrying in that respect that this language of war, an act of war, uh, we are at war with the, against the Islamic army, is not really uh, beneficial to the actual resolution of the problem. Mm-hmm. What you need to do, I mean, this is, I think, uh, many people thinking that what uh, should be done with this is precisely to deny to these groups a social basis of support. And what we're doing in the West is just to creating a social basis of support or further creating a, a social basis of, of support within the West and in the areas where they operate in Syria. So, and this is, and I, and I mean, someone asked me, what do you think about it? What worries me most is that it seems that the West is leapwalking into the, this trap that has been set by ISIL. Now, if I was like an a, 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 no, ISIL leader in, in Raqqa, now you'd be rejoicing from, oh, they're doing exactly what we thought they would do. We are inviting them over here. Russia will intensify its involvement in Syria. France will intensify its involvement in Syria. At the same time, they're demonizing Muslims in Europe. This mm-hmm. is the goal. Now, and we're achieving our, our goal in that respect. Why do you think, Marco, I mean, that's a very, it's an excellent argument. So why do you think Hollande used that language in addressing the French Congress? Do you think he genuinely feels that it is a war? Or do you think he was playing to a domestic constituency who wanted him to sound tough? I think the domestic uh, dimension plays a very big role on his uh, uh, decision to use this kind of language. Uh, Hollande is not a popular leader in France. I think uh, in the previous terrorist attacks in Paris, he did quite well in terms of showing uh, strength and leadership. And he has, and this is how I see uh, his mindset or his reasoning uh, for using this particular type of language, that the elections coming up you now, Le Pen is a, is a hmm. is a challenger to his. Uh, yeah, he could be up against Le Pen and Sarkozy, who are going to be you know hard and harder, presumably, when it comes hmm. to talking about this kind of issue. So it's even the slightest suspicion that he's a softie on these issues. He must be terrified of that electorally, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is definitely you know a very important element in how and, and why they decided to use this particular language. But at the same time, he obviously took into account the implications of doing so. So in terms of intensifying his involvement in the, 
in the conflict because it's not all about the language, actually. Actions come with it. So it has really... Uh, 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 and again, I think this is uh, uh, problematic in a number of levels. And one uh, in particular is that it's not going to deal with, as I mentioned, uh, how you deny or take away the social base of support that these groups have in France, but also in Belgium and here as well. So you're going to just give more material you know, for these groups to further uh, uh, use this particular ideology of, uh, of you know, civilization or conflict or some sort of uh, uh, we need to engage in this in this struggle. Yeah, because I mean the way that the the way that this discourse has turned so fast, so hard. I don't know if anyone saw the cartoon in the Daily Mail today, uh, but it was like something out of the, the Nazi archives with this image of refugees crossing a border with rats at their heels and uh, like shadowy gunmen slipping in alongside them. You know, and, and to use a, a word that Barack Obama threw at Senator Ted Cruz during the, during the week when he when this is this is sitting U.S. Senator Ted Cruz who mm -hmm. won the Republican nomination for president, who basically said that uh, Muslim refugees should not be admitted because you can't know which ones are terrorists and which ones aren't. Uh, he, he said that that was shameful. Barack Obama I was quite quite pleased he went in so hard uh, with that terminology. Um, because it is. I mean, okay. First of all, there's there's the, there's the moral and humanitarian case. Like, where are these people to go if if, if not here? Uh, because as an article on Slate pointed out during this week, what more tragic irony could there be than that you flee violence in the place you're from, only to arrive at another place to be promptly vilified as a violent threat? Uh, after an act by the very people that you that, that you fled, so there's that terrible humanitarian bind. But then, as an operational matter, which is what you which is what you were mentioning earlier, Marco, there's the idea that you know ISIS' main challenge isn't to get Muslims into Europe to carry out uh, terrorist attacks. Um, there are plenty of Muslims here, as indeed there should be, and there is no issue with that and no problem with that. And certainly, refugees who are Muslims zero of whom, statistically speaking, are terrorists uh, ought to be able to, to, to come here. The bigger risk is that if you have a large population that is marginalised, that is brutalised, that is victimised, whether they be refugees or people who've been here for quite a long time, that's a breeding ground for, uh, uh, for political despair and nihilism at best, and maybe the one or two people who really go off the rails uh, come out of a culture like that. So there's a terrible self-fulfilling prophecy to this, mm -hmm. which is that it's those who are hammering down hardest on this idea that the refugees, uh, the Muslims, the immigrants are the source of the problem that are actually creating the political and cultural and social environment that's massively more likely to generate the threat they supposedly fear than, than, than to resolve it. I was really disappointed this week in the re response to Paris, I think in a complimentary but slightly different way to what Marcus talked about, because he focused on Hollande and the militarization of languages of it. I was really struck here in Britain by the immediate response of the government to make political capital out of this. Now, this is a government which, uh, earlier this month, wanted to push through an internet surveillance bill that had problems with it in a previous form. They're trying to find arguments to get it through without resistance. Well, very quickly, they jump on the fact that we need 15% more personnel in the intelligence services. And then, from almost thin air, they say, here's two billion, two billion pounds, so what, about $3.2 billion, 
in an economy which is still coming out of recession, here's two billion pounds which suddenly magics itself for a national With everybody else's budgets budget being slashed. Everybody else, yeah. Everybody, everybody else's budget is being cut by 30, 35% within government. We're going to spend two billion, not on hospitals, not on education, but on a national cyber center that somehow we can have this massive electronic capability that will make us completely safe from these types of attacks. Now, beyond the practical problems which of trying to find a needle in a haystack with that type of effort in terms of threats, the message that was immediately sent out was this nexus of security, threat, and fear. You know, they could be coming to get you. They could be anywhere. You have to trust us. Mm-hmm. Which I think is complementary to what Hollande was saying to his audience. You have to trust me now at this moment of crisis. Now, compare that with a reaction which might have been one which stress not exclusion. There are those who are dangerous and evil, but a rhetoric of inclusion, which is, as I am, quite proud to be part of a multicultural society where violence is the exception rather than the rule, where we have not had Fortunately, a significant terrorist attack since July 2005 in London. That's not the way that this government went to go. And it was fortunate that Barack Obama jumped in when he did, because it wasn't just Ted Cruz in the U.S. who said, basically, I'm going to stigmatize all Muslims. Jeb Bush had actually said that, in fact, only Christians should be allowed safe harbor. Right? So, it... Just to give you a personal outcome of all this, that perhaps is why I was shaken by it. I had friends this week, and we're not talking about the Daily Mail reading friends. I had friends who are more, for British audience, would be Guardian readers, i.e. more to the center or to the left, who came back and were just saying, did you hear there was a fingerprint found and it belongs to a refugee, and did you, therefore there must be this connection, this person coming through Greece which in itself is a garbled account mixing up various forms of information. There isn't a refugee implicated in Paris. There is a, a, either a Parisian or Belgian who had fought in Syria who had come back who was implicated, which is a different matter. But for these people to be coming back, and that's what's concerning them, hmm. that tells you how much the discourse has shifted dangerously. And Marco's absolutely right, because the more you talk about radicalization, threat, you wind up having a section of society which feel they will no longer be part of what we all hope to be part of, which is safety, security, progress, and you feed the conditions. And I think you're absolutely on that mark that the Islamic State played for this in the same way that al-Qaeda 15 years ago played on 9-11 to try to create that type of fear and division within Western society. Yeah, and I, and I absolutely think that, I don't know if it's intentional or it's just a misunderstanding of what the problem or the nature of the problem is. Because the language, first of all, uh, I think soon after the, the attacks in Paris, Holland said, we are united to confront this challenge. And immediately said, I'm sorry, but you're not. And this is the key issue here, that France is not united as a society which is divided. Mm-hmm. And the very reason, uh, or the, the reason why it happened is precisely because it's a divided society. And this group has exploited those divisions and will continue to do so as a way to carry on this, this type of uh, you know, outrageous at, uh, mm. attacks. And this is one, one important aspect of it that seems that the, has not been acknowledged by the, by, 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 because it's always the same kind of answer. You are you know, putting uh, bandages on a, a massive festering wound which is pretty much 
trying to deal with the problem in terms of attacking targets in parts of the world has, which the links with uh, the, the root cause of the problem are, uh, are not dealt with in the way it should have been done. But let me ask you what might be a sensitive question because someone came up to me this week and said, did, and just said all the attackers that had been identified had been from what you might consider migrant communities or they had been people from North Africa, other parts of the world, to come to make their way in France or in Belgium. How much does that question of getting into these divisions in these societies, which have existed arguably for decades, where you have disparities in income, disparities in living conditions, where you have racism, how much does an acknowledgement of that actually help us to, to deal with these issues? How much of it, by raising it, however, could we actually make it worse? I mean, uh, I think acknowledging it is a start. Okay. Uh, dealing with it is a is a long term proposition. Uh, I, I I have a friend who is uh, from uh, uh, you know from Algeria. She's uh, extremely uh, intelligent, well educated person. She has MAs, BAs, and she's someone who had the qualifications to get the best uh, jobs on her particular field of uh, professional field. And she told me once, and I was shocked. Said I had to change my name. To get in, to be invited, to be able to be invited to uh, to interviews, to job interviews, because people don't call you to interviews if you have you know uh, uh, certain names. Mm-hmm. How can I talk about a united society if it is often the practice, you know, in terms of uh, uh, people who are perceived as not belonging, basically? Yeah, I, I guess the challenge for a politician, I mean, aside from the huge challenge of continuing to maintain support from the conservative national security hawk fringe which is a challenge in itself. The challenge where you dispose to try and articulate those issues in France or in this country now would be to find the formulation of word that acknowledges inequality and division and commits to addressing it without being seen to uh, go soft uh, as a lot of the political spectrum mm-hmm. would see it on addressing the more immediate and concrete and concrete security security threat, because as, as Scott highlighted, these are long-standing and difficult to resolve questions uh, that are unlikely to be an immediate solution to these issues and articulated the wrong way, as Jeremy Corbyn is probably discovering now and will continue to discover, uh, simply open the door for an even more enthusiastic cavalcade of conservatism and hawkery than um, no, we already have, because the national security tendency tends to be poised for signs that you are showing tacit sympathies or going weak at the knees in the face of threats and so on. I mean, my, my feeling is that part of our acknowledgement, and again, I should footnote this to an article I read on the internet but during the week, but I can't remember who it was by, sadly, is that we need to stop at this point conceiving of something like what just happened and the period that will now follow it as some kind of uh, brief emergency uh, of an extreme kind to be addressed with the kind of policies you apply in a brief extreme emergency. We probably need to accept that terrorism in some form, including targeted at Western targets and happening in Western countries, is going to be with us for a long time. 
and therefore whatever means we come up with for addressing that in terms of intelligence and countermeasures within our own societies and all that need to be ones that we are prepared to live with for a long time and therefore need to be reconciled with our other priorities for the kind of society we want to have around our liberties and our freedoms and our ideas of social equality and so on. It's this idea that this is an emergency, this, 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 this uh, anomalous, terrible event, and we need to go out into the world and resolve it. And then once it's resolved, we can go back to being free and democratic and liberal like we all deep down want to be. That's the dangerous mindset, because it's not, a, it's not that utopian realization of all underlying tensions uh, um, dissipated is not going to happen in the foreseeable future. So if you put in place an emergency framework of crackdown and surveillance and civil liberty infringement, then that's going to be with us indefinitely, or at least so long as there are still terrorists on the one side and so long as there are still politicians who are prepared to say this is an emergency. And those two categories of people seem to me to be likely to exist for a very mm -hmm. long time. If I, if I may use an analogy from my experience, which is now uh, much closer to me than the one here in Europe, I've been here for many years, but I'm from Rio de Janeiro. And we had an issue, or we still have an issue in Brazil, with uh, 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 drug cartels in, in, in the favelas. And the question was how to prevent young, uh, particular demographic, with a young male, uh, uh, um, you know, members of those communities to, to get involved with with this uh, type of activity and the way to do it and the, the few cases that it worked was exactly when you offer them an alternative a different narrative so to education to uh, uh, now uh, job creation pro future prospects in terms of uh, uh, doing something which is not exactly what the narrative that was attractive to them was the narrative of violence a narrative of masculinity of uh, carrying guns involving in the type of culture uh, and as soon as they offered this alternative, the levels of violence decreased. They mm. felt that they belonged to the wider society in a way. And I think this kind of dynamic, social dynamic, plays out quite, uh, no, not exactly the same, obviously, but it's also an important component of what was going on. Yeah, society. and the key word there is decreased. That, you know, though, though, no matter what you kind of society you have, there will be the disillusioned, there will be the disadvantaged, there will be the excluded, there will be the radical. But only a tiny proportion of those people tip over to become violent jihadists or terrorists. So the key to a sensible and successful policy presumably has to be to try and reduce the number of people who are in that much broader category of angry, disillusioned, dissident radicals, and then the pool from which this tiny number of people who go all the way to crazy with it uh, can uh, Absolutely. emerge. And this is the point I want to, I don't know, the takeaway point, to take away the social basis of support that allow ISIL to thrive in those societies. So, number of the week, where we attempt to link a numeral to a topical matter in the news. Marco, you're our guest, so we're going to put you up first. Take that as an honour or a challenge as you see fit. Okay, the number I have in mind is 215 million pounds. It's a lot of pounds. Yeah, this is the amount that BHP Billiton, uh, Australian Anglo-Australian mining company, has been fined following the Samarco. Uh, Samarco is the subsidiary uh, company, uh, mining company in Brazil, had to pay uh, following the 
disaster, environmental disaster that just happened in Brazil a few weeks ago. Right, because I hadn't heard about this disaster at all until you mentioned it to me, and then I looked it up, and it turned out that it is this absolutely catastrophic uh, failure of safety with huge consequences for the it's environment. It's by far the largest environmental disaster ever in Brazil. It has to do with the collapse of two mining dams, which are filthy. Basically, they are they store uh, the leftovers of the mining process. So it's mud mixed with heavy uh, 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 metals and all sorts of chemicals which have a huge impact on the environment. Scott, hit me with numbers. 31. Uh, it's actually related a little bit to our main theme today, but specific aspect of uh, this, this week's events was that I noticed on Twitter a message from my home state of Alabama in the southern United States, which said that uh, our esteemed governor had said, no refugees, no refugees will be allowed to enter the state now because they could come and kill us all. Um, and I thought, well, that's a bit troubling. And I issued a suitable response on yeah. Twitter that said how proud I was of the governor. But then I found out it wasn't just Alabama. The list of states grew and grew. And in fact, CNN decided to poll all the governor's offices and 31 of 50 governors in the United States so they would not accept refugees into their states after what had happened in Paris last week. Now the upside is, is that seven states said they will continue to accept refugees. I'm going to take a wild guess what the breakdown by party of these, uh, of these state governors might be, but uh, I don't want to steal your thunder, Scott. I would suspect that many of those who were not allowing the refugees in would be Republican governors, but not exclusively. Uh, that if in the South, my region where we come from, was a particularly hard line on this. But I wouldn't want to go party on this. I wouldn't want to go liberal versus conservative. I just think it was a troubling aftershock of what had occurred. And to put that number 31 in perspective, a second number, which is to actually reassure those governors in a bleak way, and that is since 2011 and the start of the Syrian uprising, the United States has taken a sum total of 1,500 people from Syria as immigrants into the United States. Mm -hmm. So approximately 30 Syrians per state. So I don't think the governors have to face an immediate problem in the near future. Okay, my number of the week is uh, uh, 60,000, which admittedly is an approximation. Uh, I didn't count them myself, but that's the figure that I'm being guesstimated uh, for the crowd that Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India, managed to assemble for Difficult to know quite what to call it. A political rally, I guess, is what it most specifically resembles, although it's not every day that, that, that a foreign leader uh, comes to hold those in, in someone else's country. Um, this was uh, during his visit to the UK um, at the invitation of David Cameron's government, uh, where he was greeted with a level of solicitude, courtship, and some might say obsequiousness uh, by Mr. Cameron, the likes of which hasn't been seen since, so let me think, uh, a few weeks ago uh, when the president of China, Xi Jinping, uh, came here under, uh, under similar circumstances. Now, I mean, there's lots of different things that one, that one could say about this. The thing that was more interesting to me was seeing it in the context of this tour of uh, rising power leaders who are coming to the United Kingdom to be greeted by Mr. Cameron. Um, with a level of uh, absolutely um, uncontained uh, solicitousness 
and uh, friendliness being sent in their direction with the singular purpose of ensuring financial uh, prosperity for the United Kingdom in some, in, in some way out of the transaction. I think one important thing for us to think here, or to, to make the distinction between China and India, I think it's important. We have to remember that Modi uh, was elected you now in a free and fair election. So India is uh, still is a liberal democracy. So it's, at least from perspective of the open countries, an example of a multicultural uh, uh, country who managed to, after independence, to stay together and develop a type of democracy that seems to work in some ways. Of course, there is problems with that. Having said that, Modi is a very controversial figure. He's a, someone who, and I've been uh, uh, following the news around it from not only from from here but also from Indian outlets. And there is a growing uh, type of resentment and anger on you know, some uh, sectors of the, the Indian society, especially the, the academics, intellectuals, who feel that Modi is an authoritarian, uh, dangerous Hindu nationalist. The Paris attacks came one day after two ISIS bombs in Beirut, Lebanon killed 43 and wounded more than 200. It came two weeks after a Russian passenger jet departing from Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt was brought down. All now seem to agree by a bomb planted on board by ISIS operatives with the loss of all 224 on board. The reality of the threat posed by jihadist terrorism beyond their ho uh, ISIS's home theatre of Iraq and Syria would seem to have been starkly demonstrated. In response to these events, President Hollande of France declared that the attacks amounted to an act of war against France and that the nation would respond with a war of its own, which would be, depending on one's favoured translation, pitiless, merciless or relentless. Vladimir Putin, speaking after confirmation that the Russian plane was shot down by jihadists, declared that retribution is inevitable. Both Russian and French air power is now in play against ISIS forces within Syria. To those who remember 9-11 and the declaration of the war on terror, this all seems uh, horribly familiar, as do the looming pitfalls that await if the impulse to do something militarily in the Middle East is given vent without due caution. Scott, this is, this is deja vu all over again, isn't it? No. The danger is that we make it deja vu all over again and that we recreate the long war, global war on terror without actually getting to the causes of what's happening. Like it, let me make just a couple of fundamental points about the Islamic State, which I think distinguish it from Al-Qaeda. The first is that the Islamic State unlike Al-Qaeda, is working off of a pretty defined territorial base. Al-Qaeda, of course, came out of the conflicts and part out of uh, the Gulf War of 1990-91. It came out of Afghanistan, where it was based, but it didn't claim a fixed territory. The Islamic State is claiming territory in Iraq and Syria, and it can only do so because of the local causes that underpin it. There are local reasons in Iraq why the group got traction, some of which have to do with the U.S. invasion of 2003, but a lot of which have to do with the Iraqi government after that invasion. It comes out of Syria, and specifically that uprising since 2011, because it's exploding a vacuum, because of the destruction, which in largest part has been reached by the, uh, wreaked by the Assad regime. Now, unless you recognize those local causes, all your rhetoric about the Islamic State and terrorism is just going to be shouting into the wind of destruction that's going to continue. The second point is probably this, and that is that simply declaring a war on terror gives you no idea of the way forward against dealing with the Islamic State. 
no more so than it really actually gave you a way forward in dealing with al-Qaeda at the time. Um, to deal with the Islamic State, as referring back to the first part of the podcast, in part you have to deal with issues within specific communities. But in part, if you're serious about this, and this is where I think, given what Marco's introduced in terms of questions about war and intervention, you have to decide what you're going to do inside Syria and in Iran. If you're a Western government, if you're a, a rebel force and opposition force, you have to address what you're going to do there because you will not defeat the Islamic State through air power alone. Mm -hmm. You will not bomb them into submission. In some ways, if you bomb, and that's the only part of your strategy, it will make them stronger. And at this point, I don't necessarily see governments thinking in a fairly coordinated way about what's needed in those two countries, but in a wider sense in the Middle East and North Africa to deal with this threat. It feels to me like we could make very serious gains against ISIS militarily on the ground without me seeing that as obviously connected to preventing the kind of thing that happened here. And secondly, the big question that we have in a place like Syria uh, is who are we for and how do we produce a resolution that's, that, that's based on that? So the solution is to resolve the conflict in Syria, for sure, but the question is how do we do that uh, when uh, we find both sides that could potentially win it so unpalatable? Yeah, I mean, there are two questions where, that I think when I look at what's going on in, in, in the Middle East. First one is, uh, do we need a legal framework that gives legitimacy to whatever type of intervention uh, happens in this country. What, what's the role of the, the United Nations Security Council? What's the role of... Uh, 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 you, you talk about uh, coordination, but there's no coordination going on. You know? And a coordination could actually uh, uh, happen in the context of uh, the United Nations. Uh, even though the Middle East is the center of the, of, of the problem right now, but, I mean, uh, Islamic terrorism is going on uh, globally. I think a number of countries have to deal with it. Nigeria has to deal with it. Kenya has to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So Lebanon, which is actually in the region, but uh, but there's no global framework in which the international community as a whole you now decide how to act mm -hmm. now to deal with this issue. So it's this uh, quite uh, uh, now uh, independent strategies from different actors, which lack coherence, lack coordination, you know, and lack legitimacy. And they're just repeating the same mistakes of the West Latin Division in Iraq back in 2003. So this was a legal intervention. We created a, the social basis that allowed groups such as Al-Qaeda, which didn't have any foothold whatsoever in Iraq, with Saddam Hussein. Now, within a matter of weeks, you know, to set a foothold in Iraq, they never left, actually just thrived mm -hmm. in the country from then onwards. So this is... Uh, uh, and the second question is, uh, and it's a more controversial one, do you think in the Middle East we need strong leaders, or the type of leaders with providers, what the captain lead on those groups. I mean, you can say whatever you want about Saddam, that he was a horrible person, horrible leader, he was a, a, a dictator, a tyrant, but there was no Islamic radicalism in Iraq before the West actually invaded Iraq and got rid of him. Uh, 
Except to the extent that he flirted with it a little bit himself in his last years to, you know, gin up a bit of support. But there's not there was a kind of tokenism to that. Yeah, but it's not an issue in terms of opposed trend the the West one. Not outside of Israel, no. Right, so, so, so you're making the case for Assad, I guess, tacitly no, there, then. That, that not maybe, necessarily, but I mean... Or at least if not him personally, then someone who is potentially brutal in method, but effective in maintaining security and, and domestic unity, maybe the lesser of two evils in these situations. Yeah. I don't want to make a political point here, but it's, uh, people say, that, okay, here you go again, but you cannot dissociate what's going on in the Middle East today with the US-led invasion of Iraq in 2003. It's impossible to do that. This is yeah. a fact. Huh? But, I mean, and Saddam Hussein was an important factor in that, in that equation because someone who kept Iraq as a secular, uh, now, uh, okay, it's authoritarian, secular state, but uh, and, and the regime had some sort of control over those groups that we don't have. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I will say this, that what we, and I think we said it when we were talking about Beirut, and it's becoming one of my running themes, mm-hmm. uh, um, which is that order is difficult, like political order, national unity, having a state, keeping everyone from uh, from killing each other and, and, and dealing with their grievances in a peaceful way. It's almost one of the alchemical mysteries of, uh, of, of political science, it seems to me, at this point, as we see state after state demonstrate pathological incapacity uh, to, to, to come together. There comes a point where you conclude, you know, maybe we are just taking for granted as though it is the natural default state of affairs um, a whole load of really excellent political developments that are just really really hard to build like to get from to get from that sort of position where Syria is today to some kind of stable society let alone a liberal and democratic one is a generations long effort of uh, statesmanship and graft well you boys sure know how to set a high wall to clear so <laughs> let me uh let me make an attempt to at least climb a couple rungs up, uh, or rungs around a ladder. Let me make an attempt to climb a little bit up the wall. Um, I think the danger here is that your valid points are from the outside looking in. So once we start saying, well, there's only really two unpalatable choices in Syria, and I can understand why people think that way from the way the conflict's been covered, uh, that's been an alarm bell. Once we start saying, well, it's going to be Iraq 2003 all over again, we made this mistake, there's an alarm bell because I think... Both of those well-founded concerns are sort of like, from our perspective, growing. I prefer to start with what's happening on the ground, just to be practical. So let's take Iraq for right now. Last week, the Islamic State suffered a very serious defeat in northwest Iraq. Uh, They lost the town of Sanjar, which had become symbolic, because when they took it over, they persecuted a group called Yazidis. Mm -hmm. Which is what led to the original... American intervention, right? Because the fleeing Yazidis got trapped in, in some mountainous territory uh, and it was intervention was effectively required to ensure their safe passage. Initially, uh, an airdrop provided a uh, humanitarian airdrop and then they followed up with bombing. That was the, the cause to go in. Now, the point of the Sinjar operation was that it was U.S. Uh, air power combined with Kurdish forces on the ground, largely Kurdish forces on the ground. Um, this is not going to be an easy aftermath because there's tension between the Kurdish community and the Turkmen community immediately after this. But what you have in effect is, is that the local force, political and military in Northern Iraq, is probably going to be the Iraqi Kurds. Which means, by the way, that we're probably looking at a de facto, if not partition of Iraq, we're moving very much to something beyond a federal system. If you want to defeat the Islamic State, you have to recognize an Iraqi Kurdistan. If you want to defeat the Islamic State and the rest of Iraq, you've got to get some type of legitimacy from the government in Baghdad. And that's been the hard problem we faced ever since 2003. 
Because what grants them legitimacy from their own constituency is the same thing that alienates irreparably the other constituency. Because you had a divisive government under Maliki which played upon legitimacy from the Shia population while in effect disenfranchising or pushing away the Sunnis. Yeah, which is also the work of the United States in a way because they created this dysfunctional type of government when Paul Bremer divided the country in Sunnis, uh, Shias. Uh, Shias takes the government because they have the majority of the population and Sunni and the Kurds, they run themselves in the north. And it didn't work. Well, um, yeah, I mean, you, I guess you could read that as democratization or misjudgment, depending on how you look at it. But the one thing he definitely did was obliterate a series of institutions in a very short period of time. In a way that was the, 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 yeah, wholly destructive to, to order. If you're going to try and bring about majority rule in a country like that, you don't do it the way he did. That much, I think, even he, I'd like to think, might, might agree with at this point. I agree with all that. But I think what I'm saying is, is that you really don't come up with a national solution in Iraq. You come up with solutions in particular areas. Kurdistan's one we talked about. You deal with getting control over Baghdad, right? Not the entire rest of Iraq, but over Baghdad. And then you build from there. In Syria, I, and you know, this is an issue I've covered pretty closely the last few years, I, I think there has to be a couple of fundamentals that we have to recognize. I think one is, is that you do not deal with the Islamic State, which in a way is a sideshow of what's happening in Syria, unless you deal with the Assad regime. Um, he has caused, or his regime has caused, the vast majority of deaths, mm -hmm. of more than 300,000 deaths. He or his regime have caused the vast majority of the displacement of 11 million Syrians. And you do not get around those problems by just simply trying to confer him with legitimacy in the name of fighting the Islamic State, because it will just fuel anger and frustration. It will actually make the Islamic State stronger. So yeah. Assad's not the option. Yeah, so, so I, mean, I, I mean, I guess the argument of security hawks over here, those who, who sympathize with him would be saying, well, okay, fair enough, he's causing more death over there, but he's not planning terrorist attacks in the streets of Paris or, or taking down planes. So from our point of view, maybe he's the lesser of two evils, but I guess your point would be that's all very well if you're just visiting a really crude number crunch, but in the long term you create a whole wellspring of resentment and instability through some kind of enforcement policy, strongman posturing like that. That's the long-term answer, but here's the more immediate answer. In some ways, Assad actually fostered the rise of the Islamic State as part of his strategy to counter the uprising. He released a number of detainees from uh, prisons in 2011, and he didn't release the civil society activists. He didn't rely, uh, you know, release those who were calling for nonviolent action. He re released a lot of folks who were, we quote, extremist or jihadist. And they went in and they formed or they joined the Islamic State. So he helped create the problem. So no, I don't think Assad's a solution. With a view to setting himself up, presumably, he, he was laying the table for the argument that he was the solution to the problem by ensuring that the other side looked worse than he did. He's poisoning the uprising. Which brings me to the second point, which is we get to, well, there's just simply two unhappy power watches. Well, um, the rebels consist of a large number of factions. The opposition consists of a large number of factions. Uh, some of those factions are beyond, I think, acceptability, such as Jabhat al-Nusra. But I think there's a negotiation going on amongst a lot of the other factions, which is amongst their political views, their social views, their cultural views. They now have de facto control of part of Syria, of northwest Syria. In my mind, you don't look national, you start with this. You establish a protected zone in northwest Syria. You see if they can govern responsibly up in northwest Syria. You don't do this to make them the agents of regime change, but you build them up into an effect. Here is a group that can establish its legitimacy. Then you can go to the negotiating table. Mm -hmm. Right now, the way that Assad has poisoned the situation 
He's poisoned as, you either have to choose me or you have no alternative. To get around that, I think you have to go with a safe area, uh, which is opposition control. The problem is, is that the Western governments have not shown the will to do this. They repeatedly did. They didn't show the will in 2012. They didn't show the will in 2013. Here's another moment when they can step up, but I fear they won't. Because the easy option is to say, well, bomb the Islamic State rather than actually deal with the humanitarian and political issues, which is where I think we probably at least come around to some type of agreement, which is bombing the Islamic State on its own. No, that's not going to be the way to go. Yeah. yeah another aspect that is more concerned the UK now, that it seems that uh, uh, the legality of those actions have become just a sideshow. People don't even uh, know. Even Jeremy Corbyn was ridiculed when he started saying, okay, we have to you know, abide by the international law. It seems not to be an issue for, for even for... for yeah, I think within the discourses it's set up here, it's taken as code for uh, let's do nothing because people have so little faith in the utility of those institutions. The view would be that if you go to the United Nations, you're basically saying, you're basically giving Vladimir Putin a veto of your national security policy. That's, that's what the right, at least, of British national security debate sees, sees it as. But um, from a legal point of view, Russia is the only legitimate foreign force in, 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 in Syria today. Because they, have, they were invited by Assad to actually to intervene there. The others were not. Right. There's two ways to read that. One is that they are the legitimate and legally present foreign yeah. force. The other would be to say, well, that says something about the limited relevance of legality and, uh, 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 and legitimacy interpreted that way. Because while it is correct that only things that have Russian approval uh, or indeed Bashar al-Assad's approval are legal and are legal, most people would not regard those countries as having much more than their own rather frantic at this point self-interest at the front of their minds in exercising the veto power that they have. I think we have to have a hard think at some point about what responsibility to protect means. I mean, this was something that was discussed over the last 20 years. Now, either you simply say we're not going to engage in responsibility to protect from now on, or you have a hard think about the institutions like the UN, and given how, in effect, almost obsolete they are to protect that responsibility to protect How do we rebuild it? Yeah, hard things prescribed all round. Well, it's been a bit of a grim edition, uh, but I think we've done as much as we can to set the world to rights. So uh, thank you very much for listening. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Paul Worldview, and please do. Uh, my co-hosts have been Scott Lucas. Do you want to tell people where they can find you, Scott? Uh, that would be at eaworldview.com or scottlucas underscore ea on Twitter. And uh, Marco, you've been our guest, but you get with that the privilege of promoting yourself through social media channels. Where could people find you, should they be so inclined? You can find me on uh, M underscore Vieira, Twitter. And that's, that's right. V-I-E-I-R-A. Like Patrick, but better at international <laughs> relations exactly. scholarship. <laughs> Uh, and I'm Adam Quinn, uh, Adam Quinn 161 on Facebook, uh, uh, where you're probably better off following me, but you can also find me on Twitter at Adam James Quinn. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Political Science and International Studies Department, the University of Birmingham, England. We'll be back soon. We very much hope you will be too.